Hey, welcome everybody. This is the State of the CIO, where we talk with America's top IT leaders about the changing role of technology in the C-suite. I'm your host, Dan Kelly. Hey everybody, Dan Kelly here with State of the CIO podcast. Hope everyone's having another great day. I've got another great guest for us today. His name is Gabe Gums. He's the Chief Innovation Officer at Spirian. Hey, Gabe, how you doing? I'm good, Dan. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Good to have you. I know you're down in Florida, probably a little warmer than where I am right now in Minnesota, hence I'm wearing the vest. (laughs) Meanwhile, I'm wearing my floral... uh... (laughs) Yeah, you've got the tropical shirt going on. I like that. I used to live down in Florida. I miss it Uh, this time of year, not so much in August. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's true. true. (laughs) You know, I know the audience is going to take a lot away from this conversation just based on our little pre-conversation before I hit the record button. But, you know, I'd like the audience to get to know you a little bit about, you know, how you got into IT, where your career has led you is becoming a CIO, which we'll talk about because there's different meanings of CIOs that we talk a lot about on the show. Was that always something you wanted to do? So I'll hand it over to you. Yeah, I'll take you way, way, way back and we'll start kind of at the start of the career. The start of the career actually predates the career itself, which is to say before people were paying me money to do things security related, I had a strong interest in information security. Spent some time in the Northeast growing up and there was a very healthy community of technologists around, young and old alike. We had a local Linux user group and the old Alt 2600 hacker crew and in the original meetings were all held in the city buildings there as well too. There was a very rich community. So a lot of the interests began there and even in you know high school, took some early programming classes, which hard for me to tell if that was rare or not at the time. I think it was probably 50-50 at the time. I'm not quite so old that my first language, you know, is like Pascal. It was actually basic. So old enough that it was certainly wouldn't want to use for anything now. Yeah. And then, you know, professionally, like a lot of others, since I entered my professional career 2000, 2001, the internet was just kind of hitting that upslope, if you would. And there weren't a lot in the way of what you might call security technology jobs. In fact, most of the security we did at the time was pretty regulated to open a port, close a port, right? Like firewalls. That was the extent of it. What? There's another virus? Shut down the routers and the switches so it can't propagate beyond that VLAN. It's like that was... Pull the plugs, right? Yeah, pull the plugs. That was very much a security control. That was how we operated then. And so at that time, I was in the networking side of the world. I started as a junior network admin in my IT career. And I did that for a couple of years before being recruited to a security position by what would become a very good friend and mentor of mine in the security world. I've held a lot of various roles throughout that time. So shortly thereafter that beginning, myself and a couple of friends thought, it was a great idea to go start up our own security consulting company because it's kind of the thing you did during the dot-com era. And uh, that didn't last <laughs> beyond the bubble bursting. <laughs> yep. It didn't survive the bubble, which is okay. It was a lot of fun, learned a lot of things. It was amazing. It was exciting. And then from there, meandered through a number of other security roles, slowly developing into some security leadership roles, building out programs. And then at one point in my career, roughly 10 or so years ago, I made the switch from the practitioner side to the solution provider side. So now I build security technologies. That is the core of what I focus on. And I noticed you have some advisory board member experience as well. Is that correct? That's also true. Yeah, I sit on a few advisory boards. I try really hard to keep my knowledge and skills as fresh as they can be and equally allow that to serve others also. So in a couple of capacities, there's some new technology startups that I help assist with some of those things. Pod.io, EGRC, etc. Recently joined the board of the InfoSec community as well, too. The folks who put on the conference and hold a number of other events. So yeah, a little bit of that. That's cool. That's great. Yeah. 
You know, I, I want to jump in quickly, you know, to something that I alluded to when I introduced you, the title CIO. I see that acronym being used in multiple different ways right across the industry, as I'm sure you do as well. Yes. Speak to me a little bit about that and what the chief innovation officer means to you. Obviously, that's your role. How that differs maybe for some other companies. Yeah, as you mentioned, the I in my CIO is innovation. And what that means for me and for my organization is that I sit at the head of our product strategy. Wear a number of other hats as well, too, but concretely, what I do is I ensure that we are delivering, we're building and bringing to market the right technologies to solve our customers' problems. And that involves working very close with our customers to understand their problems, understanding the market, where the market's going, where the market trends are heading, where the security issues are heading. What are the things we're going to need to worry about, not just right now, but tomorrow? And how do I make sure that we're building the right solutions to address our customers' problems kind of on the forefront of what they'll be facing next. There are a number of ancillary things that break down from there that include some product responsibilities, marketing responsibilities, sales responsibilities, you kind of name it if you would. But by and large, it's steering the directional product strategy shipping. Right. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. And you mentioned you know, staying on top of what your customer needs and wants. Can you talk to me a little bit about best practices you've found to gather that intelligence? Because I know I could just hear our audience speaking to me, if you will, specifically the CISOs. How do I tell the security firm, you know, what do I need? So maybe explain a little bit more about how you gain that intelligence from your customers and also share what your customers may not be thinking about. Well, we do have the old saying, you know, pops would tell me you got two ears and one mouth, right? So uh, <laughs> using the ears, if you would. I spent a lot of time in problem space, not going straight to solution space. And what I mean by that is I spend an inordinate amount of time understanding the problem, re-understanding the problem, re-examining the problem and examining it again and doing that well before I jump to the conclusion of, ah, okay, now I know how to solve that problem. And a large part of that is in speaking to those other folks in the community, talking to the other security leaders around the world, talking to their direct reports, understanding the problem at a ground level, as well as at the business level, understanding it from all angles, understanding how that impacts finance departments, understand how it impacts compliance departments and things of that nature. It's genuinely a lot of time spent with the problem. And that's just the talking aspect. But then there's a lot of understanding and being hands-on with the problem. So I also spend still a fair amount of my time getting intimately familiar with technology. It's one of those executive roles that doesn't require me just to be good at creating PowerPoints. I've got to know how to handle a Kubernetes cluster on a given day as well, too. So it's fairly complex in that sense. But the short answer to the question is I spent a lot of time digging into the problems themselves. Yeah, with the end customer. Yes. There is no other way to do it. Anyone who suggests otherwise... Yeah, versus with your internal product team, this is actually with the customer is the point. And I'm curious, I know you're finding you know, local problems, you're spending a lot of time in the problem space as you describe it. I'm curious if you're finding any sort of trends where customers may think their problem is unique, but really it's not. For the most part, your average customer recognizes that they're not so unique that their problems would stand out from others. In fact, it's one of the reasons why they come to someone like myself. You know, they'll say, Gabe, I know you're talking to other people like me. Tell me what you're seeing there. The places where I do find it unique and where there are trends in quote uniqueness, usually one of two areas or some combination of them. It's a business model that's a bit out in front of the rest of the pack. It's an organization that's doing something a bit radically different 
inside of their own marketplace that some of their challenges require a different thinking and approach to the problem because they aren't solving problems even in their own space the way everyone else is, right? So if you think about disruptors in the world, and disruption happens at a lot of levels, you don't just have to be the next Uber to be a, quote, disruptor. But it's when organizations are taking very differentiated approaches to solving their own problems where they might run into unique challenges of their own. A good real-world example of that might be an organization who is attempting to solve a problem in the healthcare space, but in order to do so, they are gathering protected health information and storing it and using it and analyzing it in ways that are vastly different than some of their competitors might be. And that introduces new data security and privacy challenges that others have not encountered. That is the trend that I'd call out in that aspect, more so than just, mm-hmm. you know, everyone's now working remotely. That is no longer a trend, if you will. That's just the reality. Yeah, we can go into tangents about that because everyone's talking about that, the different work from home thing. But I'm curious, though, are are there two or three points that you're seeing in the industry right now that your customers aren't thinking enough about? Saying that differently, are there two or three risk areas that you're seeing right now that your typical customers not naturally spending a lot of time trying to address? There's certainly two that jump right off the top of my head. One of them is more on the personnel side. One of them is on the technology side. On the personnel side, this notion of not having enough skilled employees to fill the security gap is a problem that they're not beginning to address on the privacy side of the coin. Those that thought that we don't have enough people to fill those seats are going to be very disappointed when they realize that those seats are empty. And now there's a lot of privacy challenges that we need to operationalize, and not just check a box and be compliant with. Privacy operations, much like security operations, is going to become a very necessary function inside of any organization with any sizable amount of data. It represents a significant amount of organizations. So that's certainly one that I don't think they're spending enough time thinking about. And what they're not thinking about there is how do I identify transferable skills both inside of my organization and outside to find fresh talent to help solve for those problems as opposed to waiting for someone to graduate with a PhD in data privacy? Because that's not a thing. So if you're thinking about it, waiting for the industry and the personnel to mature themselves, you will be left behind. And the organizations that are thinking about it, the ones that are truly a bit revolutionary and innovative in their ways of approaching this are thinking about that problem. The second on the technology side is I think we've all finally acquiesced to the cloud is here. It's a thing. It's not just a buzzword. Same with ML. Those two things, it's not a thing. I kind of lump those two in because they have one common point, which is significant amounts of data, large data. Some might call it big data, but that word means something in and of itself. And I think the thing that organizations aren't thinking about with regards to those new environments that we've all agreed that now we will operate in as businesses is how do I protect those things beyond just, okay, who can access the cloud? There are a lot of technologies that equally now have access to data that didn't have access in the past. It has become a extremely multifaceted problem where your traditional security controls and even the way you think about those controls and the frameworks that were developed years ago to come to those controls aren't going to suffice for the problems that we're facing. And are you finding it hard because of the, the interlinks between the clouds, right? This multi-cloud strategy. And you get hybrid clouds and, you know, which is a term I think IBM thought they came up with, even though they didn't, but that's all. Right. (laughs) The long and short of it is, are you finding it hard to create a container strategy? I'm not a security expert like you, but my common sense tells me when you have multiple different clouds and data sets interlinked, it becomes hard to containerize things. So is that true? That's just one facet of it for sure. That is difficult. It is especially difficult when the internal business themselves don't quite understand where all of that data might exist across those multiple clouds and further down the stack. So that's a huge part of it. That is very much one huge part of it. Yes. 
Yeah. And I saw on your company LinkedIn page, I think that one of your mission statements is to save humanity, if you will. And you repeat the humanity (laughs) for protecting the data. You know, it's a fascinating, more macroeconomic topic here of how much privacy people really want, because I hear it from this is like a worldwide debate, right? People want 100% privacy online. They expect it. They demand it, et cetera. But then you look at the human behavior and they'll post a picture of themselves on Facebook and expect that to be, you know, it seems like people talk out of two sides of their mouth quite a bit. Different in the corporate landscape, I'm sure. But no, no, people can't see you. So they're shaking your head. No. Talk to me about that. That's why I'm asking, because I'd be curious on those conversations. Yeah, I think that same expectation of, okay, we finally accepted that moving to the cloud is safe. But now it's now someone else's problem. It's in an S3 bucket. That sounds like AWS's problem. That sounds like Amazon's problem now. And it's like, no, no, it's not. That expectation that the thing that you're transferring to the cloud is now also going to transfer some of the responsibilities is true to a limit. Some of the infrastructure responsibilities certainly are no longer yours. And some of the security that goes around the infrastructure is certainly no longer yours. But that expectation of security there is you still have some responsibility. But you use the word privacy. And so let's talk about that. You can have security without privacy. And I think that's the thing that they're also taking for granted is that we've moved it there and now it's all secure. That doesn't mean that you have ensured the privacy of that data. To pull that apart a little bit further, privacy versus security. On the privacy side of the coin, you're dealing with risks that arise from unauthorized access to data. On the privacy side, you're dealing with risks that arise from authorized access to data. So when you have someone that is authorized to have access to that data or a system that have access to that data, but it then shares that data with other third parties, et cetera, and that is, say, against EU regulation or CCP regulation, et cetera, you still run into those challenges. I think that expectation of privacy is a bit overstated in the corporate world. There's too much of an interlink where we're still working on getting everyone to understand that privacy risk and security risk, although interlinked, and although you can have security without privacy, they don't quite get the inverse of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because people are related to their consumer-based behavior, right? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So if you were to walk in, because I, again, I'm, I'm just imagining what my audience is thinking here. And they're like, ah, oh, maybe I should look into this. You know, <laughs> maybe I should. <laughs> ah, yeah. You know, that old thing. If you were to tell a client to do a self audit on themselves, if you will, what would you tell them to do? Like, what would be their roadmap to just identify whether or not they even have the proper infrastructure? Obviously, they could call you. I think we all understand that. But if they wanted to just do some self reflection, How would you go about that? There's one very easy question that would start by asking, which is, where's all of your data? Sometimes I get an answer like, oh, I know where it all it is. It's it's all right over there. It's all right over here. And, you know, they'll tell me it's, you know, we store it securely in this location, we store it securely in that location. Where is all of your data? Where are all the places that it lives and what type of data is it? Is it sensitive? Is it not sensitive? Is it the cafeteria menu or is it protected health information? Is it employee PII? That's the first question. It's not too dissimilar than if I were to show up at your door trying to sell you home security systems. And the first thing you're thinking of is, well, what do I need to protect inside the house? Where do I keep my jewelry? Where do I keep my passport? Where do I keep my wallet? If you don't know where those things are inside your house, you're probably not going to know which rooms require stronger locks and what things you should put inside a safe and so forth. You can put an alarm system on the outside of the house. You can equate that to a firewall. But what does that really do for protecting the things inside of it? If I'm through that front door, then the rest is all lost. Sure. Knowing the targets and hardening the targets. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you tell them to do if they have identified that they have multiple places that they're storing very sensitive data? Might be health cloud, 
type of data, right? It might be kind of personally identifiable information. It could just be other sensitive information from a trade secret perspective. Any best practices you could share with the audience here? Yeah, we align those controls with their business purposes. How is that data intended to be used, shared, and things of that nature? If that's data that you need to share with a third party, that's going to require different security and privacy controls. We might have to de-identify some of that data before we, we share it, and we may need to make sure that it is in a restricted area. If that data is data that needs to be used by all of your internal employees, you've got departments that need to interact with it, then that's going to require a different set of controls and possibly even residing in a different area as well, too. So we have to link the business use of the data to those controls itself, because we can't just simply say, you know what, we found all the sensitive data, let's encrypt it all. That's not going to be useful if I have to share it. It's not going to be useful if I have to analyze it, but I've left all of the references to the personal identifiable information in there. I've now not ensured the privacy of that data as well, too. So align business use of that data with the data type. And I always ask this question of anyone in the cybersecurity space, especially today, right? Year 2021. What keeps you up at night? There's always got to be one or two things that keeps you up at night of potential risks to either your organization or your clients in your case, based on the purpose of Spirian. So any thoughts there? I jumped into solution space too quickly and I didn't spend enough time in problem space. That makes me anxious. That makes me very anxious. Did I genuinely understand that problem? And am I approaching this the right way? I know I think I've found where I want to head towards the solution, but am I really there? That does keep me up at night. And it's a constant state of revalidating our assumptions along that path to success. Mm, Yeah. I think it's a natural tendency for all humans, but especially IT people to go right to the product solution versus... Yeah, no, it very much is. People want to think of the tool. They want a tool. It's like, I need a tool to solve the problem. They go right to solution space. Like, I have this problem. I know there's a tool to solve the problem. It's like, sure, maybe, but let's walk this through. Right. Are you seeing any specific threats increase or decrease from different parts of the world? Or has it stayed pretty consistent over the last five or 10 years, just in your specific purview? No, that's going to be a forever changing landscape. The actual, the nefarious threat service, if you would, the malicious threat service will continue to be. It's the non-malicious threats that continue to really kind of surprise us in different ways, right? The unintentional uses of data collection, the the unintentional mishandling of data. Those are the types of things that we, we find new ways that people are unintentionally using this. Like, ah, I never figured you'd try and do that with it. Underestimating human ingenuity is what will always get us into trouble from that perspective. Yeah. Could I rephrase that and say essentially information spillage? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Spillage, data sprawl. It just ends up kind of everywhere. Yes. Okay. And do you, I'm visualizing this heat map, if you will, almost if we're putting together like a crime ring map, but for personal data or company data of how it's all sprawled around. Is that that something you do to understand the problem? Or maybe talk to me a little bit about how you figure out what the problem is versus having the customer just tell you what they think the problem is. Well, there are literal heat maps in the solutions we've built that literally tell you, here's where you have higher concentrations of this type of sensitive data versus that type of sensitive data. There are literal heat maps in the solution that will do that based on, you know, just data types, users, globally, things of that nature. It does help to visualize the problem. We are we're visual creatures after all. And to see where those concentrations are, because that does lead to greater exposure in a number of cases. 
Yeah, it's helpful. I mean, I know this is a big concern for everybody right now in the world as we have now not just employees working in an office with controlled endpoints, but everybody has their own network at home, right? So it's just getting more and more complicated. So I don't know if I'd ever sleep if I was a security officer. <laughs> just be too paranoid. Yeah. It would not be a good job for me. Yeah. No, I don't envy them. That is true. Yeah. I want to hop into two of our um, standard questions for the show. First being, by popular demand, tell me your best worst boss story in your career. Something you learned never to do as a manager yourself, perhaps. Well, I'll tell you, it's not too dissimilar than, than some things I've already said, but maybe stated differently. Not jumping the gun. I've unfortunately witnessed, not often, but once, maybe twice, where someone very strong convictions were held about the state of things, if you would, and put themselves out in the line without having analyzed that problem nearly enough. And that's a lesson that I learned, thankfully, relatively early in my career to not do that. I had the luxury, the same gentleman I mentioned early on in the show, of working for someone, mentor of mine who hired me in my first security role, that really taught me the value of understanding the business aspect of security. We spent in the first several months of my tenure, which I ended up working for years, just literally going through the business. We talked nothing about security. I remember I asked him on a constant basis, like, all right, when can we talk about this thing and that thing and this security thing? He was like, yeah, no, no, we will. We will. All right, is there anything else I can prepare for? I said, yeah, no, no, we totally will. And we spent just months just understanding the way the business operated. And it was thoroughly invaluable in then understanding how we were going to think about securing the business. Sure. And, you know, I think in that applications for security, I think it's a common trend that I'm hearing across all the best CIOs is it is imperative that you understand the business as a business person where business is first, IT is second. Yeah. Unless your business is IT. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, it's the same point you're making. Don't jump to the tool, for, you know, understand what the business actually needs. So we all understand it. We all shake our heads, but then executing that is sometimes not as effective for some people. And I'll people, go right back to, do we genuinely understand it? When you look at FedEx or DHL or UPS, do we genuinely understand that they are not a package delivery service and that they are a transportation business? That is their business. They have a larger fleet of planes, trains, and automobiles than anyone else on the planet. And the way they generate revenue is by being a transportation service, right? And if you stopped at thinking you understood the business of just taking a package order and getting and delivering the package, then you may have missed a large part of how the business operates. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. Second and final standard question was, you know, if you could talk to yourself at the beginning of your career, call it 20 years ago, call it whatever number you want to put on it, just the beginning of your career, what advice would you give yourself? And the reason I ask that for people that haven't listened to many episodes of the show before is we have a lot of people in the starting out in their IT career that listen to this show and to others, just quite frankly, to learn from their elders, if you will, <laughs> in a very passive way. So if you could give yourself some advice, what would that be? Slow down. I'll even give those listeners something to go read and or listen to. There's a book by Daniel Kahneman called Thinking Fast and Slow. And that book I think really kind of encapsulates the necessity for us to know when to think fast and when to think slow, when to speed up and when to slow down. And sometimes you have to slow down to speed up. And that doesn't really work well for young people at all. Young, young people to go a million miles an hour. Just like the story I told you, like I talked to my boss, like, yeah, no, let's go talk about the thing. And it's like, no, let's slow down. Let's slow down and let's think about this. So if I could tell myself anything, I was relax, slow down. You don't have a lot of time. But what time you do have, you'll want to enjoy it in all of its many facets as well. And you'll need to use it to understand the problems around you. 
Great advice for all ages. Yeah, that's true. That's the, that's true. <laughs> I'll take that advice today. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's that's right. great. Well, this has been a great conversation. If people wanted to get a hold of you, Gabe, how would they get a hold of you? Yeah, well, you can find me on LinkedIn, Gabriel Gums. You can find me on Twitter, at Gabriel Gums. You can come check me over at Spirin.com. That's where we're helping the world secure their sensitive data. You can even come give a listen to our podcast. We've got a podcast called Privacy Please, where we talk about that intersection of security and privacy. That's awesome. Yeah. Any final thoughts you want to leave with our audience today? I would leave you with where I open up, which is spend more time in problem space, even in your own personal life. When we're under pressure, we tend to want to run to it's just solving it, get that pressure out of the way, get rid of it. But sometimes being uncomfortable for just a little bit longer so you can understand that problem is really where we need to be. Very helpful. Well, there you have it, everyone. The CIO of Spirian, Gabe Gums. Thank you very much for your time, Gabe. It was a great conversation. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. If everybody enjoyed today's episode, feel free to hit subscribe and or send me a message on LinkedIn or email. You can find me on LinkedIn. You guys know where to find me or my email is dan at negotiator.guru. Always welcome your feedback, positive or negative, constructive, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Thanks so much. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's conversation, please share this podcast with one person you think who would enjoy it. For show notes episodes, and more, please visit thenegotiator.guru. Look forward to hearing from everyone soon. Thanks, and we'll talk to you soon.